You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 111. Today's episode is called How Post-Concussion Anxiety Might Be Holding You Back and What You Can Do About It. So today I have six pages worth of notes for this one, so it shouldn't take me too, too long to get through it, but I want to make a quick distinction here between anxiety and how some patients feel dismissed when any, whenever a healthcare professional mentions anxiety or that this particular condition may be due to anxiety. Uh, I think that's a big distinction to make both for healthcare providers as well as for concussion patients. So just because a healthcare professional suggests that the condition could be more related to anxiety doesn't necessarily mean that they're telling you that it's all in your head, which is what a lot of concussion patients are made to feel. And frankly, the way a lot of healthcare professionals bring this up in conversation with their patients is not done in a way that you know, makes the patient feel that they're not trying to say it in this way, if that makes any sense. So many concussion patients feel dismissed when people start talking about anxiety and concussion and post-concussion symptoms. Anxiety is so common in post-concussion symptom or post-concussion syndrome because concussion can cause anxiety. So if you've never even had an anxiety disorder of any kind in the, in, in the past, concussion can lead to anxiety, but also anxiety or having pre-existing anxiety can also lead to the persistence of post-concussion symptoms. So the two things are very, very intertwined. And so I just wanna make that distinction between saying, you know, there's some anxiety here versus it's all in your head or that you're making it up or that you're fabricating things because that is not what the case is, right? This is this is something that's very real. So if you are a patient, I will say just do one thing is just try to um, just consider the fact that anxiety could be playing a role because a lot of times patients will get their guard up and say, no, 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 it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. Because I think there's still this stigma surrounding mental health where patients don't want to be perceived as, as this being more of mental health than you know physical health. And so I think I want to just make that distinction right off the bat before we get going. So let's talk first about the relationship between concussion and anxiety. Now, I've already mentioned that the two are kind of intertwined, but what is anxiety naturally? Anxiety is our body's response to fear. What happens when we're in a state of fear? Well, our sympathetic nervous system goes up. We release hormones like adrenaline and cortisol and stress hormones that get our body ready for action. Our sympathetic nervous system kicks into gear because this is our, our fight or flight system. So typically when we have anxiety from a you know historical sense, it is because a bear is chasing us or we're in battle or something along these lines. It's either we're fighting or we're fleeing the situation in an effort to protect ourselves. And so our stress hormones kicked up, adrenaline goes, our pupils dilate so we can get more more light into our eyes, our, our nervous system kicks into high gear, blood flows to our muscles so that we can go, 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 right? We're 
you know, our cognitive processing is not very sound. We're not making, you know, good, logical, coherent decisions. We're doing things in pure survival mode. So that's kind of how anxiety will affect your body. It pushes you into this uh, fight or flight state uh, in order to in order to protect you. So this is a normal part of life, and it's a healthy part of life. The problem becomes if this becomes too one-sided. If our sympathetic nervous system is too activated all the time. That means our parasympathetic system is shut off. So this will affect a variety of things. This will affect cognitive processing. This will affect hormone balance. This will affect our heart rate. This will affect our ability to sleep. This will affect our cognitive function and how well our minds can process information and have conversations and engage in coherent thought and get tasks done. So all of these things, your, your body can't function well if it's always in the state of stress. Right? The sympathetic nervous system is meant to do things in a very short burst. It's not meant to be on all the time. And once and people with anxiety disorders kind of have this constant activation. So over time, this can create this dysautonomic or this autonomic nervous system imbalance and lead to all sorts of other things. Okay. Our, our anxiety can also be activated not only just in, you know, fight or flight type scenarios, but things that would be perceived as, you know, non-threatening if you think about it from an outside viewer standpoint, things like public speaking. Okay. I used to hate public speaking. Like I, my legs would be shaking. I would do anything to avoid public speaking at all. And now I do it so regularly. And the reason I'm able to do it regularly is because I threw myself into it. I remember when I was, and this is just like kind of more of a personal story about me, but I remember when I was in my sports medicine fellowship. So part of the sports medicine fellowship that I had to do is we had to do public speaking every, they, they, would, they would do a rounds presentation and so they would give you a topic and you'd have two months to learn everything you could about a topic and then you'd have to present it to all the academics and PhDs and other students and everybody and there'd be an auditorium with you know a couple hundred people there. And I remember the night before my first rounds presentation, I was ready to quit the residency because I was so nervous about having to do this. And I was nervous about getting grilled. I was nervous about the questions I was gonna get. I was nervous about not knowing my, my material. I was nervous about just freezing on stage, all of these things. And and then after you do it the first time, you're like, okay, that that was that perceived as threatening, but it wasn't so bad. You know, I messed up a little bit, but as you get going, you get better and better and better at it, which is now it's something I do on a regular basis. I, I speak at conferences and I do all these different things, but the way I actually was able to do it is by kind of throwing myself into it in a way. And that's kind of uh, one way to, to get over things is to face your fear. So like I said, anxiety kicks up the sympathetic nervous system, uh, can create sympathetic imbalances. Now concussion does the exact same thing right? Concussion creates sympathetic dominance. Now, if you want more information on autonomic dysregulation after concussion, I did this in last week's episode. So everything's kind of leading up here. So you create this autonomic nervous system imbalance, you have a sympathetic dominance. So it's the same thing, right? Where your adrenaline system gets kicked up more often, your pupils may dilate more, you may have fluctuations in blood flow you know, to your brain, you may have altered cognitive processing. Your sympathetic nervous system actually shuts off your parasympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system is resting and digesting. So your digestion system might get messed up. Your gut permeability increases. Uh, you may end up with diarrhea or constipation. You may end up with uh, food sensitivities that you never had before. All of these things are very similar between somebody with an anxiety disorder and somebody post-concussion. So concussion itself can kind of lead to anxiety even if you never had it in the past. Now the good news is 
is that you haven't had any anxiety before your concussion and now you end up with some anxiety afterwards it's usually a little bit easier to treat because you're not you're starting you know at a better place if you already came into this injury with an anxiety disorder and now you get concussion on that that's a known risk factor for developing persistent symptoms after and it tends to be a little bit harder to treat because you're already starting from a point that makes this a little bit more uh, difficult so there is a ton of evidence that mental health prior to injury influences your recovery after injury now this is not only for you as a patient but they've even shown that a family history of depression and mental health disorders can cause a patient to have prolonged outcomes all right so even just a family history of this so there's this is so ingrained in in, in the recovery so a good clinician will take the time and understands this that education can go a long way especially if you know if a patient already has a pre-existing anxiety disorder some sort of mental health disorder education and doing the right things up front can kind of minimize the effect of this and we've had some previous or some studies recently sorry that have come out that showing that one of the number one ways to prevent persistent concussion symptoms is by seeing a trained healthcare professional early on in your recovery and i think it has a lot to do with the education that is delivered to the patients because we're able to kind of get them doing the right things get them you know educate the patient teach them what a concussion is teach them you know what things that you know they don't need to avoid because a lot of concussion uh, or, or or sorry a, a, a lot of healthcare professionals are still telling their patients just to rest, to avoid screens, to put on sunglasses, to put on headphones, to avoid people, to just rest and do nothing. That actually creates a worse outcome in the long run. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit uh, later on in the show. All right. So these things are intertwined. That's kind of where I'm starting at is anxiety can cause concussion and uh, concussion symptoms and concussion can cause anxiety so they they go hand in hand so let's talk about the symptoms of anxiety how might you be able to pick up whether or not anxiety is playing a role anxiety is the great imitator anxiety can look like a variety of different health conditions right somebody who um, you know may have they, they may have anxiety they may start feeling like they're having a heart attack Right? They may start to get chest pain, their heart starts to race, they may start to sweat, they start to feel confused and dizzy, and they're having, they're, they're having breathing difficulties. So this can look like a heart attack. Somebody who may feel that they have some sort of you know, cancer or something, they may start getting um, gut disruption and diarrhea, and they may actually start losing weight because they're not eating. And so that further kind of makes them think that they have cancer, which then continues on the anxiety, which continues the symptoms down the road. So it's the great mimicker. It can look like a variety of different things. When it comes to concussion, think about what it does. It activates the sympathetic nervous system, which concussion does as well. This affects our ability to process things cognitively. This affects our digestion. This affects so gut permeability, uh, dizziness, uh, blood flow impairments, exercise uh, um, um, intolerance. Okay, so all of these things can look very, very similar. Okay. Anxiety comes in all forms in concussion patients. Sometimes patients may have a specific fear or phobia that can trigger an anxiety response. Sometimes it's, let's say it's flying. These could be pre-existing. So if somebody already has a fear of flying, you know, having a concussion might make it feel even worse. Some may have a fear of heights. Some may have a fear of cars. And I'll talk about uh, a recent story that we had about 
somebody riding in a car, right? Worried about the driver slamming on the brakes too quickly or going over a speed bump or hitting a pothole in a car. A concussion patient may have a fear of that. Maybe they were injured in a car, right? Maybe they're worried about uh, having a, a, any type of additional head trauma. Maybe that's the fear or the phobia as well, okay? Some can have anxiety related to the health or symptoms that they are experiencing. So sometimes if you're having constant headaches, you start worrying that something is really wrong. If you have dizziness all the time, you may feel that there's something really wrong. So the symptoms of concussion itself can be alarming and they're not going away and there must be something really, really physiologically wrong here. Maybe I have a tumor, maybe I have an aneurysm, maybe I have something that's fatal that people just haven't seen yet. So that will keep you up at night, that will keep you worrying, that will trigger more anxiety which will cause more symptoms and the spiral continues downwards. Some have a fear of aggravating their symptoms, right? Again, being told that certain things can increase your symptoms, for example, lights, noise, exercise, anything that triggers symptoms, crowds, people are often told to avoid those things, which then makes the patient want to avoid that and become anxious that anytime their symptoms kick up, that that should be completely avoided, okay? Um, so crowds, uh, conversations, uh, so getting into a conversation, you may feel that, okay, cognitively this is going to be difficult for me, so then in the conversation, it starts to become difficult for you, which then triggers a bit of an anxiety response, which then makes it really spiral down. I have some examples coming up that we'll, we'll kind of dive into some actual patient case examples that I have um, uh, from, from some patients just talking about this. Some can have anxiety related to re-injury, right? The minor bumps example, going over potholes, hitting speed bumps, uh, the driver of a car braking too hard, you know, being outside, let's say, and 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 there's people playing frisbee, and then the fris the, fr the the frisbee hits you in the side of the head, and all of a sudden you you know you spiral down, thinking, oh my God, I've just done this again, and and then because of that, the anxiety response that that creates. What does that do? Well, it kicks up your sympathetic nervous system, which put, it, all your adrenaline comes back and you all of a sudden go into this massive cognitive issue where you feel foggy and you're not thinking properly and that is an anxiety response, but now you're thinking, oh my God, I've damaged my brain, which makes the anxiety worse. And now maybe you start to get a headache from that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see how this can spiral down. This can also take on the role of becoming what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you feel that something is likely to aggravate your symptoms or something is uh, a particular situation is going to make something worse, if that's the perception, well, as soon as you go into that situation or even leading up to that situation, that is going to trigger a response prior to even getting into this. Okay, so then now all of a sudden it becomes a C. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to be difficult. So let's say you're going to a dinner party and you haven't been out in a while and you're thinking before you go, you're already like, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right thing to do, right? So what's that doing? Stress response is happening. You're starting to feel a little bit, you know, pent up. You go to this thing and then when you're there, you're starting to worry that, okay, things are happening, things are happening. This can just create this response that all of a sudden starts to become a, you know, a problem. Now, it's not necessarily that this was, you know, cognitive overload. It may have been, but it may not be. It may just be the anxiety response leading up to it, right? Think about your body going into fight or flight mode that is going to be a difficult or stressful thing. I see some comments coming in on here and I, I, I will get to them, so don't, don't worry about it. I will answer some questions at the end. And I know that this is one of those things that um, can be 
um, difficult for people to talk about or they get you know stressed out about it. So I saw somebody already mentioned some things and I, I want to address those, okay? So, um, so what could this look like? So here's a couple examples uh, from some patients of mine. So the first one was a gentleman who would, you know, try to immerse himself in cer certain situations. So they would go, he would go to hockey games and watch his daughter play hockey. And just the back and forth would, you know, make things dizzy. And, you know, he would have this motion because he's moving his head back and forth. His neck's moving, his eyes are moving, he's following the play of the game. But he said the hardest part was afterwards, he'd go and he'd stand in the, in the, um, the kind of lobby area and everyone would be standing around talking and during the conversation he would start to have this feeling that he wasn't able to follow the conversation and then that would just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and then eventually he would just exit and leave the conversation because he was having too much trouble you know focusing on everything so once that starts to happen then in that situation it, he starts to become stressed about that particular situation or thinking that that potentially is making things worse for him and so he wants to avoid that more. He doesn't want to get involved in those conversations anymore. He'd rather just stay off to the side by himself. So this starts to create a bit of a fear avoidant type of behavior uh, over time. All right. Another thing that this could look like, riding in the car. So this is an example actually that somebody brought up last night. So every uh, week inside the Concussion Fix program we do live Q&A sessions and people can just come and ask us questions and we just kind of go through the, the, the particular scenario. So the, the question from last night, and the reason I'm bringing this up is obviously because it's fresh, is that a patient was, you know, who's in our program is saying like, you know, I, I'm worried about riding in cars with people because like I'll be riding in a car as a passenger and let's say somebody, you know, slams on their brakes really hard and will, you know, move forward and come to a, a, a really abrupt stop. And I'll feel like my symptoms just shoot up and I'll feel that all of these things are happening. Now, he's worried that he's getting another concussion injury. But that's actually not the case because there isn't enough force to actually cause another concussion injury. So part of this, it could be a neck issue. There could be neck dysfunction because as he resists the stop and his neck tightens up to try and, you know, as a protective mechanism as, as we do, and his neck muscles tighten up to do that, that can cause dizziness and headaches and a whole bunch of things to flare. But also, if he's worried that this could cause another concussion, what is that going to do? That's gonna immediately activate a stress response. And that stress response can be dizziness, confusion, having trouble focusing, uh, all of the same symptoms that would come with a concussion. So now the assumption is, oh my God, I've just gotten another concussion. But physiologically, based on the amount of force in that particular incident, it's not possible to have injured the brain, but the symptoms feel the same. So you know right away, if it's not physiologically possible to have actually injured the brain during this scenario, what else could it be? Well, you have a couple options. One, it's maybe it's a vestibular issue when you rock back and forth, that happens. But if that doesn't happen naturally or normally, it may not be the issue. It could be the resistance of the neck and head moving forward as the person comes to a stop, creating some sort of neck issue. Um, or it could be just an anxiety thing, or it could be a combination, right? The neck comes forward, you start feeling a little bit dizzy, that provokes more anxiety, which then starts to make you feel more tense, which then creates more of a headache that, and you spiral down, you have this setback that may last you know, a week or two just based on that. Okay. Uh, another example, a patient actually flew to see me. They came and spent, you know, six weeks with me and we were working with them and treating them and they were like, you know, almost all better. They went to go home, get on the plane, plane hits some turbulence. 
and they land and they're freaking out and they're calling me and be like, oh my God, I think I got another concussion because of the turbulence of the plane. Okay, did you hit your head on anything? No. Okay, did everyone else on the plane get a concussion? No. Well then, it's very unlikely that you would have a concussion because the amount of force required to cause a concussion in an airplane without hitting your head would be enough force to probably rip the entire wingspan right off. And I'll talk about different G-forces you know, a little bit later on in this episode. But it... If the plane stayed in the air, the amount of, of force that was happening in that would not be enough to cause a concussion unless there was you know, a direct whip and head hit something and there was an abrupt stop in the head. Without that, you're, you're very unlikely to have gotten a concussion from that. So that's another one. Um, so if you find yourself in these scenarios worried about these different things, anxiety could be contributing to not only the symptoms but also could be holding back from the recovery. Next up is fear avoidant behavior. So I've already talked about this a little bit, but noise sensitivity, light sensitivity, and screens. Patients are often told by their healthcare providers that anything that provokes symptoms is to be avoided. Well, oftentimes, particularly early on after, after concussion, light, noise, screens can be bothersome to some people. Now, it's okay to avoid these things early on because we want to allow the nervous system a little bit of time to just kind of calm down because it's in an excited state. And then we just allow it to calm down and then we can kind of start gradually building back up. A lot of times patients don't know how to build back up and so they avoid you know, the lights and things for a prolonged period of time. We know, however, that this avoidant behavior actually makes your nervous system more sensitive to these things over time. So if you have, let's say, a perceived light sensitivity, what are you going to do? You're going to wear sunglasses. You may even wear sunglasses indoors. Well, by wearing sunglasses indoors and not exposing yourself to natural light, your nervous system becomes more sensitive to light. If you want to take a quick real-world example, picture yourself you know, watching a movie in the middle of the day. You're in a dark room, you turn off all the lights, you're watching this movie, everything's dark. You know, If you're in a theater, lights are all off. And then you walk outside and it's bright and sunny and you're like, oh my god. God, it's so bright out here, okay? So it's a similar type thing where it's not any brighter than it is for anybody else. It's just that you're not used to it yet. So in that scenario, again, it's like that immediate stress response that can bring everything back up. So if the response then is to always wear sunglasses all the time and always wear earplugs all the time, what happens is your nervous system becomes more and more sensitive to these types of stimuli, which makes things worse. So here's an excerpt from a paper that's on fear avoidant behavior. And I think this sums it up very nicely, okay? Following MTBI, sensory stimuli, such as loud noise and bright lights, and physical or mental stimulation tend to bring on or worsen post-concussion symptoms. Activity-related symptom exacerbations can be aversive and distressing, thus reinforcing avoidance behavior. Over time, excessive avoidance of activities or situations that provoke symptoms may sensitize individuals to these triggers such that when symptom triggers are encountered, symptoms are more easily provoked. So basically by avoiding triggers, when you actually do get in a situation where a trigger is there, you're provoked much, much easier. So this is more likely to lead to then avoidance of those triggers in the future because now you're even more sensitive, which then makes you even more sensitive and the spiral continues down and things just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So although initially it may be a comfort thing, right? You're avoiding the noise, you're able to navigate your environment because you have your earplugs in and it's not bothering you right now. But 
if you keep doing that, it's going to be even harder and harder and harder where maybe the earplugs don't even work anymore. Now you gotta go earplugs and noise canceling headphones in order to be completely drowned out. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So the best thing to do is to take those out and if it's too noisy, you just, you gradually expose yourself to that in a, in a graduated way. And sometimes this is, this is a very challenging thing to do and there's you know fear there, there's anxiety there and it's tough to put yourself in a situation where you're triggering symptoms. It's, it's just kind of the natural thing to do it. So um, this, <laughs> believe it or not, this idea of avoiding symptom provocation is so ingrained in people that I, I was recently chastised by a group of patients with concussion for telling somebody to avoid wearing um, earplugs or noise-canceling headphones. The question was, you know, which one should I do? You know, I'm not sure if I should go with the headphones or the earplugs. And my advice was, well, the research actually shows that this is going to lead to prolonged noise sensitivity if you, if you go down this path. So I would suggest that you don't do either. And, uh, and people were so upset by me saying this because they, they were of the opinion that this was wrong. They had been told by their doctors to, you know, do this, to wear headphones and earplugs and stuff. And so, um, it's just, it's so ingrained in our minds that we should be avoiding symptom provocation. But in reality, symptoms is what guides us to do certain things. Um, so anyway, it's, it's actually, you should be chasing symptoms is what you should be doing, right? Not going all in, but going, you know what? I'm finding noise. I'm a little bit noise sensitive. I'm going to go into noisy environments and gradually spend a little bit more time there and just get myself, you know, kind of used to that, that stimuli. Okay. Uh, just to continue on the quote that I was working on fear avoidance after concussion is associated with higher post concussion symptoms, higher emotional distress and higher catastrophic beliefs about post-concussion symptoms. Patients with concussion who have high fear avoidance in the weeks following injury are more likely to experience adverse health outcomes such as anxiety disorders and disability months later. So this is why education for your patients is so, so, so important. And this is why for patients seeing somebody who knows what they're doing, they can take the time to spend with you. They can teach you about what's going on with the concussion, what's going on with your nervous system. Why is it so hypersensitive? Why is it hypersensitive for a short period of time? Why is it important not to avoid things in the long term? Um, all of this, all of this stuff is so crucial. And this is why concussion education is such a passion of mine is to teach healthcare professionals, but also to teach patients so that they're not falling into these traps, these old school mentality traps uh, that guide them into this, you know, devastation. Okay. Uh, how could anxiety be holding you back? Well, I've already talked about fear avoidant behavior, right? So concussion treatment generally involves finding things that provoke your symptoms and then challenging yourself to do those things more, right? If I get dizzy by doing this, and this is probably even gonna be like anxiety provoking for people watching me doing this, just to see me do this back and forth, right? So this is called a vestibular ocular reflex. So as my head turns side to side, my eyes should be able to stay fixated on the target that I'm looking at. In concussion patients, this, this reflex can sometimes be disrupted. Now, in order to know it's disrupted, you actually have to try doing this and see how it makes you feel. Try going up and down. Try focusing on a target. Turn your head side to side, up and down, right? Try doing smooth pursuits. You're following your finger back and forth. Okay, does that make me feel weird? Does this make me feel weird? If it does, that means that there's likely an issue somewhere there. So what's the treatment for it? Well, the treatment is to start grooving your motor patterns. You might start slow and go back and forth like this. And you just do it maybe five or six times and go, okay, 
I feel dizzy, but it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything. It's not gonna damage you further. It's not gonna do any any harm. And then you gradually work your way up to doing that. So the way of managing concussion and the way we do this clinically is we basically find out what things cause your symptoms. Once we find out what's causing the symptoms, we know where the disruption is. Once we know where the disruption is, then we give you exercises and things that you can do to strengthen those pathways so that they're no longer an issue. But that usually involves challenging yourself, right? I say this all the time. If I wanted to develop a skill, right, the way that you develop a skill is through neuroplasticity. If I want to get really good at hockey and I want to shoot pucks and I want to be able to hit top corner, how am I going to do that? I can't just watch somebody do it. I have to do it. I have to practice. I have to learn the motor skills. My neurological system has to learn how to coordinate my eyes with my movement to be able to get there. When I first start, I'm going to suck. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. I'm going to be sore. It's going to be all this, this whole thing, right? Then after you get going, then you eventually learn the skill to be able to do that, right? So I think it's the same thing with concussion. You have to just figure out what the challenge is, where the symptoms are coming from, and then start gradually building to get to that point. You need somebody to help guide you through this, right? So um, fear avoidant behavior makes recovery more difficult because you're trying, you're actually avoiding the very thing you need to do in order to get better, right? So become more, more sensitized. Uh, the next one is small bumps and setbacks. So if you have any type of bump, right, the frisbee hits you in the head or you have a stop in a car, this triggers this negative thought pattern that goes, oh my God, this just happened. Then all of a sudden the symptoms come back, activating of the, of the sympathetic nervous system. All of a sudden you're getting a release of hormones, stress hormones going, sleep difficulties, increased gut permeability, inflammation, cognitive problems, fogginess, dizziness, headaches, na 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 na. And then all of a sudden you think that you've had another concussion. And now you think that you're getting concussed with these little tiny impacts, but you're not. It's not physiologically possible. In order to have a concussion, you need to stretch the cells of the brain to a significant degree. That requires a tremendous amount of G forces, okay? Not enough from a little frisbee to the head. Not enough from stopping in a car. Not enough from a friend slapping you on the back. Because I looked up the G forces for those, and I'm going to share them with you coming up soon. What can you do about it? So if you are a concussion patient, just consider, just consider that anxiety could be involved. If somebody suggests that anxiety could be involved, don't try not to get your back up about it, okay? I know that healthcare professionals are not very good at delivering that and providing the education around it. It is a difficult subject to broach, and so it does take a little bit of skill to be able to bring it up. But if you are a concussion patient and you're listening to this right now or you're watching me on YouTube or you're watching me live, just consider that maybe anxiety could be playing a role in my recovery because it likely is to some degree. In most cases of PCS, post-concussion syndrome, mental health and anxiety play a role. And in some cases, it's the entire thing, right? By treating the anxiety, we can get rid of all symptoms and the person is back to 100%. In some cases, it will get rid of a portion of the symptoms, and but there's still some remaining. So it's just it just depends on to what degree it is involved. But if we consider that every concussion patient, and we just think this way, if every concussion patient has some degree of mental health or psychological overlay, whether it be anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, catastrophization, pain sensitization, any of these things, we can think about things differently. We can provide education. We can provide encouragement. We can provide the reassurance that's necessary. We can introduce psychological interventions alongside our physical interventions, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which can help disrupt negative thought patterns, can help us kind of develop tools and strategies 
to help us from going down this spiral when things happen. We can develop these things when we're not in a state of you know symptom provocation so that when this happens, we have the tools to kind of get ourselves out of it and not spiral out of control. But this takes work, right? You have to build these skills. This isn't something that's just a quick fix thing, right? Medication might be necessary. So here we go. As a patient, number one, consider that it could be involved. Don't, don't put your back up against it. Just embrace it, okay? There's likely some element of anxiety on my case. I just, I know that and that's how it is. Next, involve the, the help of a mental health care professional, particularly if you realize that you're getting involved in avoidant behavior. If you're avoiding any activity that, way, that may provoke your symptoms because you're worried about it provoking your symptoms, that's an avoidance thing, okay? So try to seek the help of a mental health professional. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy are very, very good at helping you develop you know, the thought pattern of why you're going down this road and then what can we do to counteract that? What are some ways that we can, you know, um, develop tools and strategies to avoid going down this path, right? I see questions coming in, so don't worry, guys, I will get to it. Um, so develop the tools even when you're feeling good so that you have the strategy in place when things go bad. Number three, work on yourself to heal from within. Right, a lot of our, remember I, my episode last week was talking about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and the imbalance that is created in the autonomic nervous system. A lot of this has to do with elevating parasympathetic, but it also has to do with general health. What you eat can influence this. It can influence your gut, it can influence your inflammation. Infl inflammation can influence your stress hormone response. It can influence your sleep. Sleep can also, increase anxiety. If you're not sleeping well, your anxiety will go up. So you have to look at this from a holistic standpoint. You can't just go, well, I'm just going to go see a psychologist and that's going to be it. You also have to eat right. You have to exercise. You have to get your hormones kind of balanced. You have to work on things to increase your parasympathetic tone, right? That may be breathing exercises. That may be meditation. That may be singing. That may be hanging out with friends, laughter. All of these things help to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system and reduce the sympathetic nervous system to get yourself into a bit more balance. So part of it is that, part of it is also education. Learn everything there is to know about it, right? Know your enemy. If PCS is your enemy, right? Learn everything you can about it. Why does it happen? What systems does it affect? And why and how? And then what can we do about it to reverse those effects? And then every day, you're going to start reversing those effects, right? Once you know your enemy, you can conquer your enemy. If you don't know your enemy, it's scary. Everything is scary and, you, and that provokes anxiety, right? Fear provokes anxiety. So knowledge is power, okay? Here's the car example, right? We were talking about patient last night in the concussion fix program who is talking about how being in a car and somebody, the driver stops abruptly and now they think that their concussion symptoms have come back. So we spent some time just to try and ease his mind. We spent some time looking up G-forces of similar things. And I think this will help, be helpful for people listening. So a concussion, just to put this in perspective, a concussion from a linear G-force standpoint, uh, the average is 98 Gs required to cause a concussion. The range is between 70 and 120 Gs, okay? So that's a lot of G forces, all right? Standing at sea level is one G, right? It's the force of gravity. An uninhibited sneeze, so if you were just to sneeze, uh, choo, 2.9 Gs. So a lot of people that would sneeze would think, oh my God, I've just given myself another concussion. 
you haven't. That's only 2.9 G's, so three G's, and you're, you need 70 to 120, so you're nowhere even close. Space shuttle, the launch of the space shuttle at maximum during launch and re-entry into planet Earth is three G's. It's sustained, but it's three G's. High G roller coasters. Some people, you know, roller coasters. Oh, I went on a roller coaster and that threw me way off. Three and a half to 6.3 Gs. Nowhere even close to the level required for concussion. So unless you conked heads with the person next to you, um, those G forces themselves would not be enough to cause concussion injury. But again, if you have neck issues, maybe that's what happened. If you have anxiety, maybe that's what happened. A hearty greeting, slap on the back. So your friend comes up behind you, and I've had patients that have had this happen to them when they're recovering. They're like, oh, you know, I went out for some drinks. I just want to see how I felt. And my friend came up and said, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Boom, slap on the back. Okay? All of a sudden, he spirals out of control. Oh, my God, this guy, this idiot hit me, and now here I am, and I'm doomed, and down, down I go. Uh, 4.1 G's and this, they call this a hearty slap on the back. This is not just a little tap. This is a hearty greeting slap on the back. Okay. Formula one race cars. So this guy says, I'm in a car as a passenger and the guy slows down really, really fast. And it felt like we came to like a really abrupt stop. Wouldn't that be enough? And my question a was, did everyone else in the car get a concussion? Cause if not, then it's not possible. Uh, and let's look up formula one. What are the fastest cars on the planet and how much G's do they take going into corners and coming to a, to, to a maximum speed for, or from a maximum speed to a full brake? The maximum under heavy braking is 6.3 G's. Nowhere even close to concussion. Max G forces during a turn during ed, uh, a Red Bull air race, 10 G's. Soccer header, soccer ball hitting you in the head. So now it's direct head impact. There's more. 18 to 23 G's. And this is across several different studies looking at, you know, accelerometers on players' heads, heading, soccer ball, 18 to 23 G's. Not concussion range either, right? We need 70 to 120. Uh, mean peak linear force during a hockey hit. So the average is 18 G's. Mean peak linear force in a football tackle during high school and college is around 25 Gs. So that's why most, can, most hits in football in college and high school aren't causing concussion injuries. The really big ones are, but the average is only 25 Gs. So you think about the average football tackle, right? You're sitting in a car and you come to a stop. That's not the same as getting, boom, smoked, okay? Uh, concussion in a child is less, so it's 62 G's is the mean. The range is 30 to, to 90, and this is the average age is 11 years old here. Olympic boxer, all-out punch to the face. So if an Olympic boxer is to jab and straight-on punch you in the, in the face, G-forces, 58 G's. This is why people don't necessarily get knocked out with the jab. Usually it's a hook because rotationally the acceleration is it does go over the range of concussion. Subdural hematoma, so now you're getting into more severe brain trauma, right? Concussion is uh, 7,220. Subdural hematoma, where you're actually tearing blood vessels and you're getting bleeding in the brain, 316 Gs. So now you're getting into the range of really more severe brain injury. So it's all acceleration, right? In order to get a concussion, you need to stretch the cells of the brain to a significant enough degree to create ion exchange and therefore an excitatory response that causes concussion. 
And just because the symptoms come on, if you've already had a concussion, you have this this fear response inside of you and you're worried about every little bump and hit you might take thinking that you're more susceptible to injury, which so far the evidence suggests that you are not, you're going to have this kind of momentary uh, freak out when something happens and that can spiral and cause the exact same symptoms as concussion. So this is where knowledge is power, understanding that it's not possible unless there was a significant hit can immediately potentially anyway, alleviate that anxiety. Some people are still going to have it no matter how many times I tell them um, that it's very unlikely. They'll still have that immediate rise in, in anxiety and symptoms. And that's natural, right? That's understood, right? You're going through hell and then you just get hit again. And now you're thinking, oh my God, I've done it again. Of course, there's going to be this response. But if we can try to think back and remember this uh, type of you know stuff that I'm telling you now, Hopefully that will be helpful. All right, let's summarize and I'll get to some questions here. Okay, to summarize, concussion causes anxiety and concussion anxiety can cause and or prolong concussion symptoms. The two are intricately intertwined. It's very difficult to separate them from each other. Almost all cases of PCS are going to have some level of anxiety involved. Um, to some degree, sometimes it's it could be the entire case right? It's possible that all of the symptoms that you're experiencing are actually anxiety related. Um, that is more rare. I find that there's a bit of, it's usually a balance, right? We have some phys physical stuff, some physiological stuff and, and some anxiety that's overlaying, right? So we have to tackle both. You can't just get rid of one because you, you have to address the other. Um, so in every case of concussion, anxiety and mental health should be part of the picture. Um, in some cases, all you need is a little bit of education and that will be enough to undo it. And I frequently notice this in my concussion patients. They'll come in, I'll do their initial symptom score when I first see them in my office. We'll go through all their symptoms, they'll give me a rating scale, and then I do education. So once I've ruled out the red flags and I go, okay, there's nothing neurologically wrong here, this person has post-concussion symptoms, okay, they've had an injury, etc. Now let's do education. So I give them education. This is what a concussion is. This is what happens inside the brain. This is what you know happens in the long term. And this is how we're going to address at this point, this point, this point, this point, this point. And they, they leave. Usually they're like, oh, wow. No one's ever explained it to me like that. Then they come back in and the next day or two days later, their symptom score is often down like half of what it was two days earlier. And we haven't even touched them. All we did is provide the education that allowed that patient to kind of ease their mind a little bit and all of a sudden the symptoms started dropping off in their severity. They weren't as severe or um, um, you know, as, as prevalent in their mindset. In other cases, patients need to you know, go through more advanced psychotherapy and in some cases medication may even be needed. So that's something as well to, to think about, consider. Anxiety influences and is influenced by our autonomic nervous system, which is frequently dysregulated in concussion and PCS, and we have to incorporate strategies that in, that improve that. So exercise, diet, gut, hormones, sleep, stress reduction, etc. And then finally, be wary of avoidant behaviors. Okay, they will make things worse over time. So if you have found yourself avoiding crowds for fear of provoking symptoms, it's going to be worse and worse and worse the more you avoid it. If you have been avoiding the grocery store because it provokes your symptoms, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. If you wear headphones, if sunglasses, etc., okay, you gradually have to start taking those off and exposing yourself to that stimuli. You can take them with you, 
But, you know, let's say you go into a grocery store and there's lights and there's movement and there's people and there's stuff like that. And you're going to have this kind of panic before you even get there because you haven't done it in like six months. Okay. That's okay. Get to the grocery store and literally just walk in the front door, take one look around, turn around, walk out. Day one, done. Right? That's not enough to significantly provoke things to any type of degree. You're not going to make your condition worse. You are not going to make your concussion worse. That's just step one. You walked in. Step two, do the same thing. Next day, walk in. Just stand there. Take it in for a few seconds. Turn around. Walk out. That's it. You've done enough. The next day, walk in. Just go through the produce aisle. Do one lap. Come right back out. That's enough. All right? Do that for a week. The next week, go in and just do one lap around the entire outside of the store and then leave. Okay, you're gradually building up your exposure because every time you do it, you realize that it never goes as bad as you think it's going to go. And so if you start slow, right, if you go in and just decide, okay, I'm going for it and you walk around for a bit, eventually you're going to hit your limit and be like, oh my God, I did too much. And then you react by pulling back. So what I'm saying is start small. Think about the smallest possible step you can take and start there. And don't be upset by only having a small little bit, right? Walk into the grocery store, stand there, take one look around, walk out, right? It's a very small step. It seems like nothing, but it's actually a huge step forward for you because you've never been able to do it or you've had trouble doing it. So just do that. Do that for a week. Next week, like I said, walk in, produce aisle, out. Next week, I'm picturing my own grocery store. This is why I'm saying this. Walk in, full lap, out the door. Do that for a week, full lap out the door. Next week, up and down the aisles, don't even buy anything. Just up and down every single aisle, out the door. Next week, up and down every single aisle, out the door, once a day. Next, go in and actually buy something. Physically think of one product you're gonna go in and buy, and you go in and do that. So we're already four weeks into this thing, and now you're finally buying one product, right? It seems ridiculous, right? But it is so helpful to do that, all right? and do it without any assistive devices. Just know that you can leave at any time. Go out to your car, sit down, take a few breaths, all right? You may have symptoms. It may provoke your symptoms slightly, but it's gonna be very short-lived. And most of those are going to be related to anxiety because there's just not enough there to really provoke your nervous system to such a degree that you're gonna have this major setback. So if you know that you can confidently do these things, you'll be more likely to do them. So that is it for episode 111. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe, like, share, all of that fun stuff. Those listening on the podcast, appreciate it. Thank you. Share with your friends. Uh, and I'm going to cut you guys off here, and I'll see you guys next week. And then everybody on the live Instagram, I'll stick around and answer a few questions. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.